0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hong Kong has lived on the edge of empire, British and Chinese, providing services and capabilities to powerful nations, enriching its elite in the process. And the one country, two systems policy has obviously dominated Hong Kong for some years and for a period reflected Beijing's need for Hong Kong to provide China with access to world markets, especially financial ones. But now, is one country, two systems over because the Chinese no longer have those uses for Hong Kong? Well, Ho Hong is Professor in Political Economy at Johns Hopkins University. He's written a book, City on the Edge, Hong Kong Under Chinese Rule, which describes the history of Hong Kong right from the beginning, but particularly concentrates on what's happened with the protests there and the whole idea of uh, one country, two systems and where it's headed. So, uh, first of all, Professor, thanks very much for talking to us. Thank you for having me. And let's just go right back to the beginning of of Hong Kong. Can you tell us what was there before the British turned up?
1: Hong Kong has been um, sitting on the border of two tectonic plates. And it is the metaphor I use throughout the books. Uh, one is a kind of a continental power based on the landmass of the Chinese empire. So, And the other the tectonic plate is the kind of a maritime world of commerce. Uh, so even before the British came in uh, the 1840s as my book narrative started in the, the 12th century that uh, Hong Kong is already at the edge of the maritime world with a lot of uh, fishing activities and uh, maritime trade. Uh, it is sitting on the mouth of the Pearl River Delta. So before Western colonialism, there was Arab traders and traders from South Asia and also Chinese uh, seafaring traders as well coming to and from Guangzhou or Canton through Hong Kong. So Hong Kong has been sitting on this kind of a border between the continental land power of the Chinese empire and the maritime world uh, since uh, at least the 12th century. One of the interesting things that came out of the book for me was that the families who were running the
0: quite poor boating services, if you like, fishing and moving stuff around in Hong Kong before the British arrived, were transformed into very important people because they provided uh, shipping services to the British as they came in. And then some of those people went on to
1: become the big families of hong kong and part of the elite yes exactly the hong kong the catch is that hong kong was a fishing village uh, which has some truth in it so there's a lot of these tanker fishermen settling along the shore of Hong Kong and actually uh, South China uh, in general uh, for hundreds of thousands of years, and uh, they are poor. And then when the British came, many landed elite in pre-colonial Hong Kong was uh, resistant to foreign rules. Uh, and and then the British uh, seek uh, sought collaborators among the marginalized people and the tanker fishermen who were marginalized by the landed population in Hong Kong were happy to collaborate with the British as a kind of providing transporting service, uh, shipping the, the cargoes from the big ships uh, to the shore and running warehouse. And some of them become important merchants. And later, as I uh, outlined it, uh, became uh, some of the big tycoons uh, in colonial Hong Kong and become sympathetic to the PRC. And then after 1997, one of them, particularly the Henry Ford family, became a kingmaker uh, in the post handover political
0: Yeah. So in that way, they reflect the history of Hong Kong from poor fishing village to the British period and now the Chinese being predominant. But can, can you just tell us a bit more about, I mean, everywhere they ran colonies, the British ruled through local elites. How did that happen in Hong Kong? What did that look like?
1: Yeah, there's the urban part and the rural part. In the urban part, definitely, uh, since the 19th century and particularly after the Second World War and after the communist takeover, there were a lot of Chinese mercantile elite and industrial elite uh, migrated to Hong Kong. And so the the British uh, colonial power, like the British colonial rule in in many other places that they cannot uh, establish direct, intervention in the society so they rely on co-opting local elites of course it include the European elites the big Jewish family the big British um, merchant house of some of them and also some Chinese elites uh, first of all it is this mercantile and banking families and later on after the Second World War there came the industrial elite that originated from Shanghai and and shipping families like the Dong Qihua families as uh, uh, one of them so after they arrived in Hong Kong they also uh, start to be integrated. in the the power system under British rule. So they are the the urban uh, elite, uh, European and Chinese, that uh, collaborate with the British uh, government to govern Hong Kong. And the British colonial government actually in Hong Kong enjoyed some autonomy from London and from time in. Again, that we see in the post-war period that the British colonial government often uh, try to advance the interests of Hong Kong and even at the point of arguing with or sometimes fighting with the London government who might have some other thought about Hong Kong. So Hong Kong has been quite an autonomous city state even in the colonial period and based on a synergy between the British uh, officials and the British European and the Chinese business elite. Now one of the key moments
0: in the history of Hong Kong was When the communists uh, took over China and they could have taken over Hong Kong as well. But uh, one of the points your book makes is that they didn't because they chose not to. And that was because Hong Kong was providing services to the Chinese government, even through the Cultural Revolution and everything. So just spell out for us, why would China prefer at that time Hong Kong to be under British rule?
1: Even at the height of Cold War, before Nixon visited China and in the 15th and 60s, then China really relied on Hong Kong as a window to get access to capital and supplies. For example, during the Korean War, there was an international embargo on the PRC, and then Hong Kong became a kind of transshipment center in which a lot of smuggling going on that the tanker, Family, the Henry Fogg that I mentioned before, that they basically thrive in the 1950s, early 1950s by shipping strategic supplies, including medical supplies, some military hardware smuggling into PRC to defy the embargo. So it is this kind of shipment of supply that uh, PRC desperately leads through Hong Kong and also capital because cut off from the world economy and China still leads to have hard currency to purchase capital goods and machines from the world. And it's all through Hong Kong. And Hong Kong has been the only source of foreign currency for the PRC at the height of the Cold War, as many Chinese migrants in Hong Kong send remittance back home and also. So the PLC to maintain the the banks and merchant business companies in Hong Kong to do business. Uh, also, they sell actually in the early 1960s, China and uh, South China, uh, Guangdong province start to sell drinking fresh water to Hong Kong. Uh, and it is one very important source of foreign currency for China that China in turn used to purchase uh, capital goods and all, all kind of uh, strategic supplies via Hong Kong. So Hong Kong has been very important provide the only window that China can have access to the world under the international environment. Uh, even after Nixon visited China, that China also continued to rely on Hong Kong as a kind of middleman or point interface with the, with the world. Yeah, I mean, I'd never realized that Hong Kong had separate
0: membership of the World Trade Organization. I mean, that illustrates the point perfectly, you know, quite independent of China. So clearly, goods and services could move through Hong Kong in a way that they couldn't go direct to China.
1: Yes, even after 1997, even after China uh, entered the WTO, that the fact that Hong Kong is an independent and separate member so in the WTO from the PRC under different conditions and terms is very important. Finance is the most important, uh, even to today, because China... For economic and political security vision never interested in opening up its financial system so foreign banks cannot actually directly and fully do business uh, in China but Chinese companies and Chinese wealthy people still need to, to have access to global finance so the solution is to maintain a window in Hong Kong so the foreign banks international banks who want to do business with Chinese companies and Chinese wealthy people while they cannot do it uh, directly and fully in mainland China can do it directly and fully in Hong Kong. So Beijing actually through Hong Kong had the best of both worlds. First, that they can shield off their financial system from foreign uh, participation, but at the same time, they can enjoy access to international finance through Hong Kong.
0: Yes, it reminded me of the situation of Switzerland in the Second World War when Nazi Germany allowed the Swiss to remain an independent country, a neutral country, uh, but clearly could have overrun Switzerland, but didn't uh, because the the Swiss banking services were useful to Nazi Germany.
1: Yes, indeed, it is very much a similar dynamics.
0: So then take us forward to more recent times when Hong Kong was providing other services to the Chinese leadership, for instance, allowing senior politicians in China to get residency in Hong Kong for their children and allowing the, the children to move more easily internationally.
1: Indeed, if you are in China, you are elite, you are an, a leader, if you have a lot of money, that is it relatively or very difficult to move your wealth out of China without being noticed by the government and, and even not allowed it in many cases, it's very difficult. So what they do is that they establish or their, themselves or their families, a close family, wife or children, to establish residency in Hong Kong and then buy property in Hong Kong because once uh, money moved from mainland China to Hong Kong, you can move the money from hong kong to anywhere else in the world uh, freely and without uh, being noticed by beijing by the authorities so a lot of wealthy elite would use hong kong as a kind of offshore station uh, for them to, to store their wealth it is why hong kong not only the banking insurance and financial sector but even like the art Gallery auctions and and red wine auction house, they are very, very prosperous because of this kind of elite of the Chinese elite to to, to store their wealth in Hong Kong. So has any of this changed? I mean, that's the interesting
0: thing. You've got this whole period where, you know, Hong Kong was allowed to exist in the way it did because uh, it was it, it basically served Beijing's purpose. Has that now changed? Does the Chinese Communist Party and the senior politicians there have less need of Hong Kong than they used to?
1: Actually, it is, it is a very interesting question and it is not yet a settled issue because the existence of Hong Kong on the one hand served Beijing, Chinese uh, national development and served the financial lead of the Chinese elite very much. But at the same time, it constitutes a threat on the one hand that uh, the lead that Hong Kong serves cannot be easily replaced by any financial center in mainland China, Shanghai or Shenzhen. They keep talking about developing Shanghai and Shenzhen as a free trade zone that can replace and outcompete Hong Kong but they talk about it for 20 years and uh, and nothing happened in all these other financial centers because uh, they're a lot offshore they don't like Shanghai or Shenzhen they didn't have a separate currency which is freely convertible with the US dollar they don't have totally porous financial border with the world economy and many other institutional uh, framework like the court in common law tradition and things like that and and didn't exceed so even they try to start a Shanghai free trade zone, but the international banks are not very interested in moving there, and they start tried in Shanghai and Shenzhen to do the same thing to establish a free trade zone to attract uh, business from Hong Kong to there, and 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 international business and even Chinese uh, Chinese financial uh, firms are a lot interested in in, in doing uh, the business in place of Hong Kong. So, uh, Hong Kong is uh, in, irreplaceable in its uh, status as an offshore financial center. So it uh, it has a very unique role. But at the same time, it constitutes a threat to China because uh, the analogy between Hong Kong and Switzerland uh, under the influence of Nazi Germany is very well, except that Switzerland was a sovereign country and Nazi Germany didn't need to worry about Switzerland uh, influencing the politics and threatening the regime in, in Nazi Germany. But Hong Kong is uh, nominally part of China and a free society within the PRC sovereignty constitutes a threat to mainland China and the communist regime with all these kind of June 4th candlelight vigils and all these protests. And 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 they really worry that uh, the freedom in Hong Kong will uh, spill over to mainland China. So it is a dilemma. On the one hand, they have this lead to maintain a free society and offshore financial center in Hong Kong. But at the same time, this freedom creates a space for possible challenge to the CCP rule. And so what happened in 2019 uh, and what is unique about the 2019 protests in comparison to, for example, the 2014 protest, is that uh, there's evidence that I show in my book that at least there's elite sympathy to the protesters uh, among the Hong Kong local financial elite and even some mainland Chinese elite in Hong Kong because the impetus that gave rise to the protest is to protest against this extradition. Bill that can uh, allow the Chinese security people to to arrest uh, and transfer the people in Hong Kong to mainland China to be tried in the mainland Chinese court system. So it uh, scare many uh, rich people, uh, including Chinese rich people in Hong Kong. So there's a lot of indication that even the elites are, uh, are starting to be at least sympathetic to the to the rebels and if not outright uh, rebellious. So it is why um, the Chinese government need to crack down in full force and even revamp the political system uh, through this national security law totally because they worry about this kind of uh, rebellion in Hong Kong is no longer restricted to the lower and middle class but also uh, spreading to the elites Uh, so if there's a kind of alliance of elite and the popular classes uh, uh, formed and and it will really be kind of uh, from the perspective of Beijing a color revolution that the local government of Hong Kong will be taken over by somebody uh, not totally Controllable by Beijing, so it's why they crack down hard. And after they crack down hard, they're still in two minds about how far to go. That under National Security Law, of course, the civil society is already eradicated mostly. That many organizations, student organizations, NGOs are already outlawed, or people are arrested or escaped. It. But at the same time, they don't know how far to crack down on the financial elite. There's uh, two examples that uh, it is uh, it is very. Uh, happened very recently is that i don't have the opportunity to include in the book but it is very important um, to show the fact that hong kong uh, the conflict over hong kong is not over one is tell you what we'll yeah. get
0: onto that in a moment and i'd be interested to hear
1: about sure. those two cases but just before
0: then i think it would help yeah first of all just to spell out what you said there about the issue on which the student protesters and the elite may have yeah. uh, had common cause was this idea that you could commit a crime in Hong Kong and be extradited to be or moved to be tried in China itself. And that became the key test, really, of one country, two systems. And before we got onto the protests and this latest news you've got for us, I just thought it'd be useful to spell out one country, two systems, because one of the points you're making, which is interesting, is that the model had been used and actually it had failed in Tibet and arguably in Taiwan. So Can you tell us, first of all, about the Chinese idea of one country, two systems in Tibet?
1: Yeah, in the 1950s, that China establish a 17-point agreement with the Dalai Lama government, according to the argu- uh, agreement that the Tibetan elite the Dalai Lama government uh, recognize the PRC sovereignty over Tibet. In exchange, the Dalai Lama government can continue to govern Tibet and take care of all internal affairs and the PLC only take care of external affairs, foreign affairs and even the Dalai Lama government can maintain their own very minimal military establishment of the Tibetan government the, in, in Nasa. So it is exactly a one country, two system with without being called one country, two system. But of course, that Tibet at the time, lot like a Hong Kong, it didn't play a kind of a role as an offshore financial center. The reason why the PRC established a one country, two system with the Dalai Lama government is simply to buy time because uh, in the Tibetan plateau that without kind of a highway and reasonable trans- transportation network linking the mainland China with Tibet. So it is very difficult to send all the military, the PLA, to govern. So they need to buy time to build the highway uh, connecting Lhasa to mainland China. And after that is done, that they uh, really continue to expand the direct control of Tibet and invoke a rebellion in 1959. And then uh, the rest is history, that uh, there is a full-scale direct control and the Dalai Lama free. And uh, Tibet turned from one country, two system, to one country, one system. After the uh, 1959 uprising, and Deng Xiaoping in early nineteen eighties, even we currently talk about. Uh, 1950s, Tibet is a kind of quite successful experiment of one country, two system, and he blamed Dalai Lama for its failure.
0: Right. So that, that you're quite clear in that case that it was a cynical measure by the, or tactic, uh, by the Beijing leadership to buy time one country, two systems before they could impose one country, one system. So now take us through your interpretation of the use of the one country, two system idea in relation to Taiwan.
1: Yes. In Taiwan, of course, it's very different that Taiwan uh, has a full uh, support by the US under the Taiwan Relation Act because it uh, has some kind of a path dependence about how PRC and US established diplomatic relations. Uh, before 1979, when PRC and, and, and the US established diplomatic relation, US has a formal diplomatic relation with the Republic of China in Taiwan. So when they the uh, US uh, shift the recognition to the PRC in 1979 that it uh, also instituted a Taiwan Relations Act that show U.S. continuous uh, commitment to defend Taiwan. So Taiwan has this uh, kind of U.S. protection and also U.S. Uh, see Taiwan is a very important strategic place. So Taiwan were offered one country, two system, actually uh, from the 1960s that Mao Zedong and Joe and I already uh, suggest this kind of one country, two system arrangement to Taiwan and is today. Uh, but they are a lot interested. Uh, they don't need to entertain it because they have their, their, their continuous backing of the U.S., and also it is more difficult now because Taiwan is a fully democratic society. They have their full election of their legislature and their presidents and the free press and, and a very vibrant democracy. So it's not like Hong Kong is a liberal society, but it's not a fully democratic society before the handover. So uh, from a Taiwan perspective, it is much more difficult for the people in Taiwan to... Uh, to accept this kind of a one country, two system uh, arrangement,
0: right? But it's easier in Hong Kong now. Is it your view that one country, two systems is now over? You know that the Chinese have done enough to effectively mean they've got complete control of Hong Kong, or is it still an open question?
1: Yes, yes. That did come back to this. Uh, two example uh, in uh, in recent uh, months is that, uh, and one wing of the CCP, of course, uh, see that this one country and they write about it and I talk about it that I cite in my book that uh, explicitly that one country two system is just to buy times and then now just like in Tibet. Now the time is ripe. They can establish full control of, of Hong Kong, which is true in the sense that they have already established full control of Hong Kong now after eradicating all these liberal newspaper and opposition groups and parties and, and, and in terms of civil society and politics that they have established full control. But what they are not sure yet is about uh, how far to go to put Hong Kong's status as an offshore financial center in jeopardy. That after the national security law that uh, beijing have been talking about applying the anti foreign sanction laws that is already effective in mainland china to hong kong last year early last year and if it was uh, applied to hong kong it has a dire consequence to the financial sector because under the anti foreign sanction laws financial institutions and any companies in hong kong cannot follow sanctions established by U.S. or U.K. or other foreign government, if they follow those sanctions uh, against officials and, and individuals or companies, they will be violating Chinese law. So any financial firms, banks in Hong Kong will be forced to choose between abiding by U.S., U.K. law or law in anywhere else in the world and Chinese law. So they will be in a very difficult position. They are e- either violating Chinese law or U.S.-U.K. law when it comes to this sanction issue. So if they really apply that anti-foreign sanction law in Hong Kong, it will be forcing a lot of banks actually to leave Hong Kong that they find it is impossible to to abide by the law of both sides at the same time. But then there's a lobby... By banking sector in Hong Kong, including Chinese bank reportedly uh, in Hong Kong, saying that it will destroy Hong Kong offshore financial center status. It will be a huge impact on on the business environment in Hong Kong. In the end, that uh, at the last minute, in last summer, that uh, Beijing declared that they they are going to suspend and continue the study whether to or how to apply this anti foreign sanction law in Hong Kong, so that it create a space for financial institution to actually to continue to abide by US and Europe and UK sanctions against Chinese officials without violating Chinese law so it's one example that they're still cautious about How far to go to destroy Hong Kong' uniqueness uh, to the point of uh, jeopardizing Hong Kong' status as an offshore financial center? Another example is, of course, the COVID control measure. Early they are talking about Hong Kong has to follow this strict COVID zero COVID policy to have a universal lockdown. And to have universal testing, like what Shanghai is undergoing now. But again, that uh, these uh, bond firms and banks and, and all these uh, people are very anxious about, about this kind of a lockdown impact on the financial center. In the end, that they didn't, they didn't do it. So Hong Kong literally escaped the fate of Shanghai. And on the other hand, that they are loosening border control regarding foreign uh, visitors and things like that. So the, this kind of a concern about Hong Kong financial centrality is still in the mind of the Chinese leaders, so much so that they, they are not uh, ready to go full force to make Hong Kong exactly doing the same thing as, for example, in terms of COVID policy that Shanghai did. So it, it shows that it's still not yet a settled issue about uh, how far to crack down on Hong Kong and to destroy Hong Kong offshore financial centers' uh, status. Right. I
0: wonder if we just put this in the context of China's imperial policy, if you like. One of the yes. striking sentences in your book is that China is an empire trying to be a nation state. And yeah. Yeah. I think, if I understood you correctly, the history of Chinese imperialism yeah, within its yes. own what is now within what is now yeah. China's borders is that, compared to some imperial systems that allow a lot of leeway to local yeah. cultures, local rulers, and some sort of local yeah. autonomy. Uh, China has never done it yeah. that way. It, it, it wants yeah. control, right? So this yeah. situation that Hong Kong is in now is an anomaly within the Chinese tradition. Is that right?
1: First, China is an empire pretending to be a nation state. It's, I, I said somebody else who, who talked about it, and it is quite uh, obvious now. And some people said, oh, it might not be right to call Chinese uh, an empire or call about Chinese imperialism. But ironically, that uh, many Chinese official scholars and prominent intellectuals within the establishment of the PRC they do talk about China as an empire, as a kind of, a, they're proud of it, actually, that they use the word empire in a positive way. They, they talk about the fact that we have the Roman Empire, we have the British Empire, we have the American Empire. Now it is trying to turn to become an empire. So they a lot strive from acknowledging that China has an imperial is a, in imperial power, and China has this imperial tradition as I talk about in the book. That and the Chinese leader in official uh, textbooks and explicitly talk about it is that in the Qing Empire in the 18th century, that they incorporate all these areas with uh Long Han and Long uh, ethnic minority, and so uh, in the beginning, that they allow them local autonomy, the local native chieftain can exercise local control, but when the time came through immigration of Han Han migrant in this area and and also the when the time became mature, that they just establish uh, direct rule and then uh, get rid, got rid of the uh, of the local chieftain and the local elite, and then assimilate the area, and then they move on to another uh, far, 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 farther away uh, area. So what China do is 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 like that. That uh, Hong Kong is the first stop that they incorporate a kind of a culturally, politically, and socially very uh, different uh, entity from mainland China, and then they assimilate it and. and established direct rule. After that, they move on to somewhere else, and definitely, then Taiwan is the next target. And um, and some uh, ultra nationalist uh, writer in 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 China is already writing, and the people take it as a joke. But I I, I always think that uh, we need to take it more seriously than than people uh, did. Instead, to talk about this kind of next uh, like 10, 50 years, how China can revive its glory. There's some ultra nationalist writer is talking about. Hong Kong, Taiwan, and then Okinawa even, that uh, because the Okinawa, this old Ruku kingdom, was a kind of a triple state of the Chinese empire before it was incorporated by Japan. So they are already talking about this kind of continuous expansion in this overseas uh, entities. So that definitely is a kind of imperial ambition there and is tied to the revival, the so-called great revival of the, of the, of the Chinese civilization
0: well you've you know you've very clearly described you know some Hong Kong history and this very difficult relationship with China in you know the last few years let's say particularly 2019 Hong Kong saw these massive protests which is what sparked the you know the end of one country two systems can you explain those protests to us in terms of the relationship with China, which I guess is pretty obvious you know, that Hong Kong was asking for liberties, they, they, they to, to preserve liberties they felt they had. But also the parallels with South Korea and Taiwan, where there are also protests. What I'm really asking is, were the Hong Kong protests at all like the ones in South Korea and Taiwan?
1: The Hong Kong protest is very much inspired by Taiwan, because Taiwan faced the same great power, which is the PRC, that tried to incorporate the, the society uh, and uh, even eradicated the local democracy. Uh, so, the concern of many Taiwan protesters, even though there's driven a lot of internal uh, issues in Taiwan, but it's always linked to this kind of a who are the collaborators of the PLC who try to seize control of Taiwan and who are not. So, Hong Kong uh, protest is very much inspired and connected to the Taiwan protests. Uh, but of course, Hong Kong protest has this uh, specific agenda. Uh, the 2019 protest is the most confrontational and uh, widespread uh, mobilization in Hong Kong history. And, and 2014 is another one. But the protest, the target is very different. In 2014, the protest is triggered by the failed promise of full democracy in Hong Kong, because uh, the, the one of the the key elements that PRC of Beijing tried to convince the international community and, and the British government and also Hong Kong people uh, to accept uh, sovereignty uh, handover to China is that uh, Beijing promised in the end that the Hong Kong local government will be Will 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 have universal suffrage. We have uh, elections uh, to elect Hong Kong people will elect their own leaders and their own legislators. So uh, it was uh, the promise was in the Sino-British Joint Declaration, nineteen eighty four, and it was in the Basic Law that is the mini constitution uh, endorsed by the Chinese government uh, to govern Hong Kong after nineteen ninety seven. So people expecting this kind of universal suffrage after nineteen ninety seven, and many of the protests is to ask for us. A speedier and a implementation of this of a genuine universal suffrage. So, the trigger of the protest in 2014 is that Beijing said that, yeah, you have universal suffrage, uh, you can vote who is your chief uh, executive, but uh, we are going to control the candidates and uh, we are going to pick the candidates for you to vote for. So, then many people think that it is uh, not really a genuine universal suffrage, it's just like an Iranian kind of elections uh, or the village election in China that the party pick the candidates and then people can vote which party candidates they can vote sometimes only one candidate so people protest in 2014 to ask for genuine universal suffrage so it is asking for the fulfillment of a promise that they failed to de- deliver uh, so it's 2014 and 2019 target is a kind of a a more defensive protest because, uh, as I said, it was triggered by this extradition bill that allowed Hong Kong police and Chinese security forces to actually arrest people in Hong Kong and transfer them to Chinese court to the PRC. So it is a kind of um, um, uh, encroachment into existing uh, autonomy and liberty uh, of Hong Kong people. And because before this extradition bill, there's all, a lot of uh, reports about this kind of a cross-border kidnapping. Of Chinese tycoons uh, and booksellers Um, so but they do it uh, or reportedly they did it uh, in a kind of more kind of a under-the-radar secretive way but after the extradition bill people will expect that uh, they can all do it uh, out in the open and more will be happening So actually that this kind of protest is a kind of a defending some existing uh, liberty and even uh, legal protection under the common law in the Hong Kong court system. And so it is very different from the 2014, in the 2014, uh, the Democrat the opposition, the grassroots, and the middle class are asking for full democracy. But the business elite are lot uh, impressed. Uh, they are actually that coming out to denounce the protester, and they are firmly in alliance with the Beijing in in dilonging the protests uh, in 2014. But in 2019, the business elite. Actually, were the first uh, to come out to, to voice their concern and even opposition to this extradition bill because uh, they lead because there's a lot of cases in which the Hong Kong business elite getting into trouble with their business partner or local government in China, they they, they get uh, warned or detained and and they escape and get back to Hong Kong. But if this extradition bill became a reality, they can arrest them and transfer them to mainland China. So the business elite are, are threatened and 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 they're anxious. So they are. Establishing an alliance, kind of, or in, at least in a sympathetic relation, uh, with the protesters. So it's why the protest in two thousand nineteen is so huge, because uh, many people think that it is an existential crisis of uh, of Hong Kong.
0: Yeah. So, if I understand you correctly, the yeah, there's a, if you if you take South Korea for example, the students were basically asking for democratic reform there on the streets for many years, and uh, yeah, that was not so dissimilar to 2014 in Hong Kong. But yes, uh, yes, but 2019 was you know more of a specific issue in relation to Chinese power.
1: It is taking away a fundamental freedom of Hong Kong and the rule of law of Hong Kong that Hong Kong people enjoyed it since the colonial times, actually in the 1970s and 1980s, particularly after the colonial reform in the 1970s. And Hong Kong is not a democratic entity, but it was a free society. And people are seeing that being threatened fundamentally by the extradition bill in 2019.
0: Now, one, one of the most fascinating things about Hong Kong is, you know, it's almost an experiment in political culture and how long it takes to form a political culture, which is all sort of encompassed by the question, to what extent does Hong Kong have a genuinely separate identity and culture to the rest of China?
1: It is a very interesting question because uh, there have been uh, a lot of discussion and scholarly research on Hong Kong cultural identities, and many people see the rise of the Cantonese pop song in the nineteen seventies as one key indicator of this uh, Hong Kong separate identity and the use of vernacular language. Because before the nineteen seventies, uh, most of the pop song is English or Mandarin Chinese, and uh, so there's a lot of talk about this cultural identity. But this kind of a cultural identity is just cultural identity in terms of political identity. Many Hong Kong people, including the opposition, that they are Chinese nationalists. Uh, So it is why the democratic movement in the 80s and 90s that they have been supporting hong kong returning to china and then they are uh, seeing hong kong democratic movement uh, just an appendix or a part of the chinese democratic movement and the ultimate goal is not only autonomy and democracy of hong kong but a democracy of the whole china so they are chinese nationalists what happened is that after the, the handover a new generation grow up which is different from the older generation who has a lot of connection with uh, mainland China in terms of their family ties, in terms of uh, uh, the resentment against uh, British colonial rule, as you will. But the new generation grew up in a in a time when they don't have this kind of a, a resentment against the British colonialism and 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 comparatively speaking, they feel British the late colonial period uh, Hong Kong to see more freedom than 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 after 1997 when a lot of kind of a control and censorship self censorship of the media start to expand Uh, so they start uh, this new generation start to uh, develop uh, Hong Kong as a uh, separate political identity that uh uh, and then a lot of this kind of a research and survey opinion pool us about people identification show that after the Beijing Olympics, particularly in 2008, that the Hong Kong identity becomes uh, stronger and stronger and Chinese identity become weaker and weaker. And particularly among the young people, they really see Hong Kong as a as a very, very separate, uh, not only a cultural entity, but also even a political community uh, so that uh, they start to think that Hong Kong future, Hong Kong political system should be determined. I mean, by referendum, local referendum and and so it is uh, the support of self determination of Hong Kong about Hong Kong future after the one country two system set to expire in 2047 so it's a very different landscape and and this kind of identity a political identity of Hong Kong once established it is very difficult to 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 get rid of from a Beijing perspective even
0: through draconian repression well, it is very interesting to hear your account of Hong Kong but just thinking in terms of its importance to the world i guess you know, the, 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 what happens is important to the people of Hong Kong, it's important to Beijing. But when it comes to the rest of the world, it's really Taiwan that matters, isn't it? Not now, it's not Hong Kong, really.
1: Not not only Taiwan, I would say even further afield, because uh, one of the key official scholar, which is the, the smartest, most sophisticated establishment scholar now, uh, the head of social science at Peking University that Jiang gong I keep citing, it's very interesting that he... Explicitly talk about uh, in his book that Hong Kong is important to Beijing in the sense that because the British left a lot of the Western institutions in Hong Kong, political, legal, social institutions in Hong Kong. So, Hong Kong is kind of a laboratory for Beijing to learn how to uh, dismantle, erode, and take control of these institutions and, and establish rule. So, it is kind of a first stop for Beijing to learn to how to project its influence outside of mainland China. And uh, after it learned a lesson how, about how to manipulate election, about infiltrate media and the society, and things like that, they can apply the thing that they learn in Hong Kong to other liberal society. Taiwan is definitely one of it. And some people already uh, noticed that uh, the Chinese strategies uh, in establishing influence among overseas Chinese community in New Zealand, Australia, even UK, that it has some resemblance in in what they have been doing in Hong Kong, even during under. Uh, British colonial rule in my book, I talk about uh, a lot of incidents in which how the CCP is already established the ground of, of United different um, influence and, and, and uh, with elite and grassroots people and NGOs in Hong Kong getting ready for the final takeover so these kind of tactics they have been learning that, uh, that can be seen uh, that they have been applying to other uh, offshore society even sovereign society in like uh, uh, in Singapore and New Zealand and in, 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 in Australia we see from the news that time and again and it's very similar to what uh, we expect in Hong Kong before Hanover. Well, that really does suggest there is a a broader relevance and uh, I'm sure we'll all be able to understand
0: what's going on, you know, a lot better for having uh, listened to you. So thank you very much, Professor.
1: Thank you very much.